Welcome to Seeing Beyond Risk, a podcast series from the Canadian Institute of Actuaries. I'm Pingtang Lin, the podcast host for this episode. In today's podcast, I have Tom Wendling and John Juffs here to talk about a recent CIA research report titled Condominium Infrastructure Condition in Canada and Long-Term Risks. John is the co-author of the paper. He is a building science consultant based out of Canada. Tom is a PNC actuary and engineer based out of the U.S. The paper itself explores the considerations around setting and managing condo reserve funds, the risk factors that we're dealing with, and how condo legislation across Canada could vary among the provinces. Tom, John, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thank you very much, Ping. I'm happy to be here. Great. So why don't we start off by sharing a little bit about yourselves. What are your backgrounds and what do you do professionally? I'm an engineer who works in water, power, and transportation infrastructure. And I'm also an actuary with the CAS who supplied insurance ideas to long-term replacement of aging capital infrastructure assets. Not unlike the common elements of condominiums that we're going to discuss today, but more really focused on things like water treatment plants, light rail systems, and power plants, and things like that. So I was involved early on in the project oversight group, and we decided to focus on condos because they are a very special case of infrastructure where there's a lot of activity right now. And from my perspective, Ping, I'm a building science technologist based here in Ontario in Canada, and I'm the director of the facility assessment and restoration group at McIntosh Perry. We conduct about 180 to 200 reserve fund studies a year for condominium corporations all across Canada, mostly in Ontario. It's just simply the largest body of condominium corporations is in Ontario. So I've been doing this since 1989, and I guess those of you who are fast at math gives you a rough idea of how much experience I have in those sorts of things. Right. And I guess I wasn't really aware of Project Oversight Group coming up with this research topic be great if you could give it a little bit of an intro on the motivation for this research in the first place. Sure thing. The concern was some headlines that made it to Actuarial Association who, you know, were interested in the fact that why were condominium corporations making headlines for not having enough money? Couldn't they see and manage this risk? Like in Ontario, they're required to have reserve funds, and yet they were making the news for not having enough in their reserves. And many actuaries work in managing funds whether they be property and casualty funds or life insurance funds and so on. They work in the management of funds and understanding the risk to those funds based on various changing factors. And so it piqued their interest and they put out a call for proposals for the papers, the one that Jean-Sébastien Coté and myself responded to. Yeah, we really saw that condo associations were especially a very ripe subject and that there really was a crying need to analyze the issues in establishing reserve funds for future repair and replacement expenditures. It's a common problem. Infrastructure of all types, not just condos, suffers from a big problem in that the time horizon of infrastructure is far longer, decades longer than what you'd expect in the time horizon of our business leaders, uh, boards of directors of condo associations and government leaders. Politicians are normally elected for very short terms compared to the longevity of infrastructure. So the, the question of whether or not a common element of a condo is going to need a, a major replacement 30 years from now or even 15 years from now is usually not in the forefront. It's not the main subject of concern of the people who are leading these boards of directors. 
You raise a great point, Tom. I mean, politicians usually enact laws based either on disaster or on where the voters reside. And it's becoming abundantly clear that community associations in the states, uh, co-proprietaire in Quebec, condominiums in most of Canada, and uh, strata corporations in British Columbia all have greater numbers of voters residing in them. And so anything politicians can do to make the voters that live in condominiums and, and all the other community associations have an easier time as they age in place is well received. And so smart politicians are making sure that they speak condo language in their various writings. Yeah, and I think it's important to understand the political motivations too of deferring these types of investments and these types of expenditures. It's very easy to look at a reserve fund on a balance sheet, which interestingly, uh, unlike insurance industry, the reserve fund is shown as an asset, not as a liability. And there isn't always a matching liability that's calculated with the same rigor on the other side of the balance sheet. So in, in many ways, these future obligations to repair swimming pools, to repair elevators, to repair roofs and siding isn't really recognized as rigorously as what's the funds that have been put on the asset side. So a lot of times that money can be plundered for more glamorous projects. They can be a clawback of those funds to build something a little bit more exciting, focusing more on interior decoration, that sort of thing. And it's very easy to defer the critical infrastructure upkeep that normally is something that is beyond the time scale of the people making the decisions. That's actually really interesting. Uh, just not having a liability posted on the balance sheet for this just kind of blows my mind. But then again, I mainly work in a valuation context, so I'm all mostly dealing with liabilities all day. Yep. So from the research paper, I had a quick scan and the research paper is really comprehensive. So for the listeners that aren't well-versed in the condo industry like yourself, just to give people a feel, what are the legislations and governance considerations in place around condo reserve funds today? Well, you know, Ping, in Canada, the legislation is by the various provincial and uh, territory jurisdictions. So there seems like there's about 13 of them. They all seem to vary in their in their requirements, and, and they do to a certain extent. Many provinces have mention of reserve fund planning or depreciation reports in British Columbia, and they vary by jurisdiction around as to what can happen. So in British Columbia, while it may be mandatory to get a depreciation report, it is not mandatory for the strata council to act on it. In fact, with a sufficient vote motivated at any general meeting, they can completely defer doing that work. That's not the case in Ontario. In Ontario, the reserve fund is mandatory. The study of the requirements for contributions to reserve is mandatory, and that must be followed. And if it isn't followed, you have to disclose it at your own peril to all the future buyers and current owners as to why you're not following the recommendations of an expert. And it varies from those two extremes all across the country. I thought it was interesting too, John. Uh, one of the outcomes of the report showed the different guidances given to condo associations on what actually reserve spending is supposed to be dedicated for. Mm -hmm. And I saw that there was a lot of variation between the provinces. And I'd like to maybe also give a little bit of comparison with what's going on in the U.S. Um, in Canada, it really seems like legislation is a lot more advanced as far as determining the requirement for reserve funds, reserve fund studies. Even though there's a lot still to be done in the U.S., we only have maybe a third of the states that even have a reserve study requirement. And there are some states that have statutory guidance for reserves, but most, if not all states, do not have a statutory requirement to actually fund a reserve. So it's really a handful of states that even have a reserve study requirement, including California, Nevada, Colorado, and Washington, and a handful of others. But it's not as advanced as the state of legislation in Canada. Yeah, it was interesting to me, Tom, 
when Ontario started with its legislation in 1967, it was motivated by Florida laws. And it was not a state law, but there were many Florida jurisdictions that had laws saying you have to have money put aside to do the painting and the pavement and things like that. A very limited list, what has now grown into, and most of the legislation is understood to be common elements, those things that are owned jointly by the various owners of the units. But then Florida sort of morphed and changed away in many of the, what we would call municipal legislatures here in Canada, are changing and have changed their requirements. And so we built on that legislation at the time, and it went from 67 to 75. There was a minor change, but then there was an important change in the late 90s where reserve fund planning became mandatory in Ontario. And this sort of set the bar for all the other jurisdictions to also start considering it. And it wasn't too long after that, that most jurisdictions had at least the requirement for a reserve fund, if not the actual expert study of it. You know, John, you mentioned Florida, and I'm hesitant to mention the Champlain Towers collapse uh, over the summer, but you really can't ignore it. If you try to understand the relevance of proper reserving and maintenance and repair and replacement of commonly owned property, it very rarely leads to loss of life. More commonly, it results in an impairment of an asset that a homeowner wasn't aware of a certain liability that could affect the value of their recent purchase. So I recently purchased a home myself in a homeowners association. It would be shocking to find out that a common element in our complex here is on the point of the end of its useful life and it presents a safety hazard that would seriously impair the investment that I just made. So this is a question of consumer protection, homeowner protection as much as anything. And that's why perhaps there is so much legislation being directed at this. Yeah, absolutely. The motive for most condominium legislation in Canada is consumer protection. Every aspect of any legal challenge or legal case, in, in whatever the subject is, it doesn't have to be reserve fund planning. But the courts have always said the primary purpose of this legislation is consumer protection. And uh, as far as the Champlain Towers, I mean, a horrible, horrible tragedy. And of course, we won't know all the details for quite some time, but reading some of the headlines and so on about the prevarication and deferral of maintenance to that underground garage really is cause for for alarm that, you know, if your governing council is coming to you saying we need to do repairs, I would hope that most homeowners would see that as an investment in their property and not a problematic outlay of cash. Yeah, and, and you're absolutely right, John, that the investigation is still ongoing and I want to be very careful not to suggest any premature conclusions about what happened there. But the common elements of condominium communities, they represent a significant kind of collectively owned infrastructure and the incentives to defer, the incentives to downplay the need for special assessments that you can never really predict the future structurally what's going to happen in a building. It's almost like you're collecting funny money that isn't necessarily going to be needed. It's difficult really without a qualified engineering opinion to put the urgency on the need for that reserve fund. Yeah, we've certainly completed a number of mandates since June 24th uh, here in Ontario and for other clients of Macintosh Perry that have been motivated by boards of directors realizing that they were basically uh, had been deferring work. In fact, we had two underground parking garage projects accelerated in their timeline for delivery. They had initially deferred them, primarily motivated by pandemic concerns. But then when June 24th happened, they realized that they were just clutching at straws for excuses for not investing in their co-owned property. And so the, both those projects got off the ground and are underway now. Not that they were in imminent danger of collapse or anything like that, but nonetheless, they took it to heart and they realized that they owe a much larger fiduciary duty to the common good of the, all the owners and the public than what they were perhaps exercising prior to that date. So it was a real wake-up call. Right. So could you just define briefly what the reserve fund is, differentiate between what the reserve fund is versus the operating. Um, sure. 
when these fund studies are typically conducted and how often uh, would they be conducted? For sure. I mean, in simple terms, a reserve fund is a pot of money. It's a bank account that has money in it. That money is usually earmarked for specific mandates. It doesn't have to be in every jurisdiction, but in most jurisdictions, if you have a reserve fund, it is earmarked for them a major repair or possibly the replacement of common elements. And common elements are the things that are co-owned property. So, you know, roofing, exterior walls, windows, doors, site work, uh, underground garages, the main structure of the building, even some things that you think are exclusively yours, and in fact, they're often referred to as exclusive use common elements, can be part of co-owned property. So many, many, many high-rise condominium corporations, the balconies are exclusive use common elements. And when you think about it, it's you know in the interests of the entire community to make sure that the condominium corporation looks after that exterior common element, even though it's particularly used by one owner. So a fund is that, a big pot of money, and the requirements for when and how often they're to be done uh, in most jurisdictions, they have to be done within the first year of a corporation coming into existence, so when it's registered in the land title office, and then anywhere from as frequently as every three years to as infrequently as every five years, with very few exceptions. In those jurisdictions that have chosen the three-year update, those updates can be with or without a professional visit. So by that, I mean every three years, the alternating one is done basically from historical records. So if a corporation says, yes, we replaced the roof, and they produce an invoice saying we replaced the roof, that gets built into the fund for the next cycle of repairs. Which leads to what factors determine the contribution levels? Well, it depends on the experience of the corporation itself as to how frequently they're doing major repair or replacement to the common elements. Some corporations want to always be the very, very best and keep up with the Joneses or even keep ahead of the Joneses. And so they'll do their lobbies, you know, every seven years, <laughs> whereas other corporations will be like, that lobby served us well and it continues to serve us well. It's, you know, being well-maintained and, you know, we aren't planning on doing a renovation to it for another 15 years and it might already be 15 years old. So that's fine when it comes to cosmetics. That's no big deal. That's the community itself deciding what they can tolerate as far as ongoing condition. Uh, but when it comes to more important things like the condition of the underground garage and so on, well, that you know, has to be reviewed by expert eyes and, and sometimes expert testing and then appropriate programs of repair conducted. So that's the biggest thing is the timing and the actual magnitude of the cost that determines the contribution levels. I mean, ideally, you'd always contribute the same amount to reserve all the time. That's called the reserve fund planning in heaven. It never actually happens. So what you want <laughs> is to be able to at least have a reasonable level of contribution so that you can afford the planned spending and have a bit of a cushion for some unplanned spending. So th those are the biggest factors. I mean, we can get into the weeds of some of the mechanisms and so on, but those are the biggest factors. Tom, is there anything I forgot there? No, I think that's really as far as determining what a reserve fund contribution would be. It's a lot like rate making. It really is. You have maybe a much longer tailed exposure than you would with, say, liability claims. But uh, certainly on the scale of asbestos and environmental claims, you know, talking 20 or 30, 50 years, I believe the horizon of our model was 100 years. And you do have to take a, sort of a discounted stochastic cash flow analysis in order to establish what that premium, that rate or that contribution should be. It's very analogous to what actuaries do. But then, so would actuaries typically be involved in assessing contribution levels? Typically not, actually. And really, when you think about it, this research, one of the the reasons it was really meant to inject an actuarial perspective, which we think is a valuable one into the act of reserving for future repair and replacement costs. And you think the future costs are stochastic in time, 
The longevity of capital assets, such as the common elements of condos, they can be modeled a lot like a life insurance problem. And it's it's something that we're trying to achieve with this research is to show off a bit the actuarial ability in doing these kinds of long-term projections, where long-term projections are, in fact, a statutory feature of the balance sheet and the income statement of insurance companies. And it's, it's something that we can maybe address in one of your later questions. I think you have some time allotted to discuss the role of the actuarial in this. But I can answer you almost unequivocally, no, that actuaries are rarely involved in the setting of these contributions. I would definitely echo that, Tom. The role of the actuary is, and, and especially now that I've been involved in this research, the role of the actuary is very important in managing the risk of, of large increases in the future or, or simply shortfalls in, in the amount of funds available. And actuaries have a keen eye to what sorts of things are going to adversely impact the availability of funds in the future. And it's not something that's to be lightly dismissed. My industry, the building science industry and the engineers and architects and those people who are authorized to prepare these plans, we tend to be a little bit more, you know, what is the likely range of quotes I would get to replace that roof as opposed to what if that roof fails earlier than I expected? And so these are very different questions and actuaries recognize the difference in those questions and analyze quite succinctly and quite carefully what the actual difference means in terms of money, which of course many condo owners are, are quite interested in. <laughs> It's a good point, John, and actuaries do have a large skill set when it comes to long-term financial projection. But I think one of the unsung advantages of this profession is that actuaries have an institutional organization to create and standardize around scientific methods for consistency, for reproducibility. That's essential for statistical analysis and risk management. So it may be not as acute or as obvious a need from one association to another, but if there were ever to be established, for example, a mutual fund, a mutual reserve fund that is shared between multiple condo associations, multiple homeowners associations, so that they could actually pool their experience together for that kind of analysis to take place. And also for a sort of an alternative source of risk financing, risk capital that condo associations can draw on to deal with really what are mostly, I hate to call them unexpected expenditures, but when you find out that you have to repair a major foundational elements of a building, for example, even though that element may have had a, an expected lifespan, it may happen a lot sooner than you thought it would. And where does your money come from? The idea of a mutual reserve fund has been tossed around even in our POG. And it's something that an actuary would definitely have a much more traditional role in managing a portfolio of these assets in the portfolio of condo associations. So th there's a lot that actuaries can offer to, to better fund and better reserve and set more actuarially not excessive and not inadequate minimum contributions to these funds. And the idea of a mutual fund also was touted for a little while in social housing circles, both federally and in many provinces in Canada. And the Social Housing Services Corporation did reach out to uh, providers to say, you know, if you want to invest your reserve and make a little bit better than GIC type rates, we have this mechanism in place to do it. And it's mixed results, but for the most part, it's been favorable to those participating in it. Of course, it would be a lot more favorable if a much larger group was involved. And that will require a lot of effort. But I think the day is coming when people say, you know what, we all look after buildings, they're all residential buildings, and let's, let's approach this the same way and, and have each other's backs really is what it comes down to. You know, if for whatever reason there actually isn't money in the bank for doing that roof replacement, well, then there's an easy place to get it and repay it too. This is the end of the first part of our discussion on the CIA's Condo Reserve Fund Research Project. Please feel free to check out the research paper on the CIA website.
We now have over a hundred episodes of the CIA Seeing Beyond Risk podcast. I encourage you to check out your favorite podcast platform to binge on past episodes. More importantly, subscribe to be notified when a new episode is released. We would also like to hear from you. Please leave a rating, comment, or send any suggestions or episode ideas to podcasts at cia-ica.ca. As well, we're always looking for content on our Seeing Beyond Risk blog. So if you have any ideas to share, please send it over to seeingbeyondrisk at cia-ica.ca. This is Ping Tang Lin, your host for this episode, and thank you for tuning in to the Seeing Beyond Risk podcast.